Welcome to the Pioneer Podcast, telling the user-submitted stories of pioneers of Utah and the American West as collected by the Sons of Utah Pioneers. This episode of the Pioneer Podcast is an audio file generated by a Pioneer biography submitted to us at pioneerstories.org, a webpage of the Sons of Utah Pioneers. We invite you to share your family Pioneer stories too, by going to pioneerstories.org and clicking the red submit button. Your story will also become a part of this podcast, where it can be shared with other family members as well. Now, here is our pioneer story. This episode is about James Barlow and Encrompton Barlow. Encrompton Barlow was born on August 27, 1805 in Prestwich, Lancastershire, England daughter of Thomas Crompton and Martha Mottershead. She was their ninth child and the twin of Martha Crompton. All of her brothers and sisters were born and christened in Prestwich, Lancastershire, England. James Barlow and in Crompton were married on February 13, 1831 in the ecclesiastical section of St. Mary. It is also part of Prestwich where and was born. Prestwich is a small town a township, and a sub-district in Manchester District, and this parish is also partly in Oldham and Bury Districts, Lancashire, England. Prestwich, the town, stands 1.3 miles east by northeast of the River Irwell and 1.5 miles east by north of Clifton Junction Railroad Station, and 4 miles north by northwest of Manchester. It contains numerous good residences, a post office, several chapels and churches, handsome monuments, a lunatic asylum, and a workhouse. Little is known about Inn's husband, James Barlow. The following notes are all that is available after much research. He was born in Whitefield, Prestwich, Lancashire, England, on June 13, 1802, the son of John, born, June 13 in Radcliffe, Lancashire, England and Jane Barlow, born ABT 1778 in Whitefield, Lancashire, died July 2, 1792 in Hampstead, Norris, England. Whitefield is a chapelry also known as Stand, with a village, in Pilkingston Township, Prestwich Parish, Diocese of Manchester, Lancashire. It is located 1.5 miles southeast of Radcliffe Railroad Station and 5.5 miles north by northwest of Manchester. Stand was founded in 1829. In 1861, the population was 8,958 with 1,824 houses. There are many good residences. Cotton manufacturing and employment are largely carried on. James was christened in Prestwich, Lancastershire, England. From James Barlow's Patriarchal Blessing in Manchester, England, November 9, 1841. Dear brother, I lay my hands upon, ye pronounce ye, the blessings of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Thou hast obeyed the gospel and entered into the new covenant by baptism, and thou wilt have to fight the battles of the Lord. He will equip thee for the war and teach thy hands to war, and thy tongue to speak the truth, thou shalt have access into the treasury of righteousness and draw from thence great promises, and be successful in preaching the everlasting gospel. Thou shalt understand the mystery of the kingdom, 
He will give thee wisdom and intelligence, and make thee a pillar in his house to go out no more, and give thee visions. Revelations Prophecy. And thou shalt go to Zion at the fruit of thy own hand and rejoice having corn. Swine and flocks herds ye shall worship in the temple before the Lord, with prophets and apostles, and see the priesthood restored from on high, and see the glorious coming of Messiah and rise to meet him in the air, and with the faithful seed of Abraham reign one thousand years. I seal these blessings upon ye in the name of Jesus Christ, Amen and Amen. He received this blessing at age thirty nine. He lived eight more years. James' sons, Oswald, John and Joseph Smith Barlow, testified on several occasions that his father, James, was preaching one day at the Manchester branch. When he finished his sermon, he sat down. Immediately the presiding elder arose and said, Brother Barlow, I, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, call you on a mission to the spirit world. The shock caused his wife, and, to faint, but James went home and in a very few days became ill. He was dead within three weeks on July 22, 1849 at age 47. He died in England before his wife and Crompton Barlow, age 43, and their three children, John, Jane and Joseph Smith immigrated to America. In October 1838, the city of Prestwich, England was first opened to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints to gospel teachings by a missionary named William Clayton, who wrote the LDS hymn Come Come Ye Saints. This was one year after Heber C. Kimball was sent as a missionary to open up Europe in 1837. James was among the first to be converted in Prestwich and was baptized by Elder Green on November 17, 1839 and was confirmed by William Clayton. James and Ann are the parents of eight children with four sons and four daughters. Joseph Smith Barlow is the youngest in the family. All of James and Ann Barlow's children were baptized into the LDS Church. They were recorded members of the Manchester, English branch. Their oldest son, Oswald, was baptized in England four days before his mother, and at age 21 on February 10, 1840. It would have been a cold time of the year. Richard, age 12 and Nancy, age 10, were baptized three years later on July 2, 1843. Martha, at age 10, was baptized on October 4, 1846. John, age 10 was baptized during the cold part of the year on January 29, 1848. Jane, at age 9, was baptized on July 14. 1850 in England, just one year after her father's death. Alice Barlow died at age three as an innocent child, thus has no need for baptism. The youngest, Joseph Smith Barlow, at age nine, is listed in 1857. He would have turned eight years old in Fairfield, UT during his recovery from crossing the plains with the Martin Handcart Company. He may have been baptized sometime after his recovery. England is beautiful with a lush green countryside from unexpected rains. The landscape consists of rolling hills, trees, and rock wall fences. Manchester, England In the 19th century the population of Manchester soared from 70,000 in 1801 to 108,000 in 1821. 
It then rose to 142,000 in 1831. Part of the rise in population was due to immigrants from Ireland where the potato crops had failed. In 1816 a company began to supply piped water, through iron pipes, to those who could afford to connect. In the 1820s Manchester gained gas street lights. However, like all 19th century towns Manchester had dreadful slums. Some streets were unpaved. In some of the streets rubbish, such as rotting vegetables, were piled in heaps. It was only removed at intervals to be sold as fertilizer. People used cesspits which were cleaned infrequently. The worst slums were the cellar dwellings. Whole families lived in one-room cellars. Sometimes they had no furniture and slept on straw. They were damp and unventilated. Because of these horrid conditions disease was rife. In 1832, a cholera epidemic killed 674. However, there were some improvements in Manchester in the early 19th century. The Manchester Chamber of Commerce was created in 1820. The Manchester Guardian began publication in 1821. In 1828 horse-drawn buses began to run, and in 1830 a railway to Liverpool was opened. A corn exchange where grain could be bought and sold was built in 1837. In 1838 Manchester was made a borough, a town with a corporation, for the first time. In 1846 the first public parks were created, Peel Park, Queen's Park and Phillips Park. And Crompton Barlow was an English Mormon emigrant, who felt the desire to bring her three youngest children, John, 17, Jane, 15, and Joseph Smith, 7, to the Utah Territory to gather in Zion with the saints. She was a widow, with meager means, thus was chosen to use the perpetual emigration fund by the leaders of the Manchester branch and would have said a tearful goodbye to family and friends in her town, located near Manchester, England. This would be the last time she would be in her native England country. She would have walked, been driven by a horse-drawn cart or wagon, or boarded a train which traveled west to Liverpool, which was at that time, the greatest shipping center in the world. She crossed the ocean in 1856 on the sailing vessel Horizon with her sister. Elizabeth Crompton Haddock and her daughter Mary, age 21 and 856 other saints. Edward Martin was their church leader. They went by railroad car to Iowa City, Iowa and there became members of the Martin Handcart Company to cross the plains. Anne's oldest son, John, stayed at Fort Laramie, Wyoming. And and her two youngest children became trapped in the October snowstorm at what is now known as Martin's Cove, Wyoming. After rescue wagons arrived, and only a week from the Salt Lake Valley, and left her critically ill daughter, Jane, near Fort Bridger at Fort Supply, Wyoming. And and Joseph Smith arrived in the Salt Lake Valley on November 30, 1856. After having arrived in the valley, and refused to let the doctor amputate the legs of her youngest son, Joseph Smith Barlow. After marrying and having children, both daughter and son, Joseph Smith, died in their twenties, and lived in Fairfield, Utah County, Utah for at least twenty years with her single son, John Barlow.
When John married Loons Barlow, his cousin, her dad was Oswald, like Aunt Aline's boy married Pam Simpkins, and moved with them to Richfield, Sevier County, Utah in about 1878. Her daughter-in-law, Amanda recalls, she lived to be 83 years old, died in Richfield in October 18, 1887 at the home of her son, John, after I came to Grouse Creek, and eventually had 39 grandchildren, which were born in America. She must have hundreds of descendants, which spin out into this world like a vast, vast nation. She was a faithful pioneer, with grit, stamina, and resourcefulness to have survived, and help her children survive, the 1856 Edward Martin Company, ship voyage, train ride, crossing the plains with a handcart and experience the early winter storms ordeal in Wyoming at Martin's Cove. An immigrant traveling with and Barlow writes in his autobiography, at this pier, Boston Harbor, nothing but cattle cars could be obtained and into these we were loaded, bag and baggage. In those we rode to Albany, state of New York and crossed the Hudson River here. Here we laid over two days and two nights and were permitted to change to third-class accommodations. The seats were two-inch plank with no back. In this miserable way we were conveyed to Cleveland, Ohio, at a very slow pace. The country along the track was studded with fine orchards, bearing fine apples and all kinds of fruit. The fruit was so tempting that at that rate of travel, the young men would jump from the train, fill their pockets, and overtake the slow-moving institution. However slow, it brought us into Cleveland on the morning of the greatest day in America. Not realizing the meaning of all this parading and firing of firecrackers, and artillery, an elder of the church explained it all to our satisfaction. Since that day, however, the 4th of July is as precious to a Latter-day Saint as to any American who lives under the flag-flying stars and stripes, the red, white, and blue. While waiting in that city for change of cars a great rainstorm continued two days. We and our luggage were exposed to the weather, the company having no sheds to protect us. A large barn was secured and all were transferred to it until the storm abetted. Like Missouri and other places the people of the town despised the Mormons and after the saints had retired for the night, a mob of bullies including some females gathered around the barn and kept up for hours such a howling and bombarding with stones and bats it equaled any Indian powwow I have ever listened to on the frontiers. Finally the presidency of the company found a person who it seemed had some authority, who persuaded the mob to desist and go to their homes. However, if left the people in a state of terrible excitement. Not a person closed an eye that night in sleep. In the early hours of the morning our train arrived and in short order we, with all our effects, were on our way to Des Moines, Iowa where we had once again to be subjected to mobocratic insults. But we were better protected, as the city had some good sensible men to govern their affairs. We had to lay over two days until our train was ready to start for Iowa City. We boarded the train and started from Iowa City from which place we would take the road with our handcarts which were being prepared for us at this place. On our arrival, there was great rejoicing as this was to be the place where a great change in our way of travel would commence. But the work on our carts had been neglected built out of green wood and we were detained four weeks on this account, 
So these four weeks were lost to us when we ought to have been making our best time on the road. This neglect proved a sad and fatal mistake. As we had to make up this lost time in the snow with short provisions and short of bedding as well. So you may plainly see where the mistake proved so fatal and so many poor souls passing away and filling an untimely grave. The Barlows crossed the Hudson River at Albany, passed through Buffalo, New York on the 4th of July, Cleveland and Toledo, Ohio, Chicago, Ill. They crossed the Mississippi River by steamship at Rock Island because the railway bridge was burned down. They continued by train through Davenport, Iowa to finally reach the end of the rail line on July 8th at Iowa City, Iowa, which was the jumping-off place to cross the plains that year. A 1856 Martin Handcart pioneer, by the name of Heber Robert McBride, writes in his autobiography, I was then 13 years old when we got there, Iowa City, and our baggage was unloaded. It was getting late in the day, and our camping ground was three miles from the city, as there was no place at the depot large enough to accommodate so many people. So a great many of the people started for camp on foot just about dark, and I was one of them. But we had not gone very far when it began to rain. And it was so dark that you could not see anything, and to make things worse I got lost from the rest of the company, but we made out to keep the road by the help of the lightning. After ascending the hill I could see a fire at the camp. They were keeping a big fire burning for to let the people know where the camp was. When I saw the fire, I started in a straight line for it and that is where I missed it. Not knowing anything about the country, I thought that would be the best way. The rain had quit after it whipped me through, there not being a dry thread. After wading through numerous pools of water from ankle deep to knee deep and wallowing through grass as high as my head, I managed to reach camp pretty near give out. But after all my bad luck I was there before quite a number of the company. Father and mother and the children arrived after me, two of the children, being small, had to be carried most all the way. This was my first night in a tent. When I awoke in the morning, the sun was shining. Then I saw the beautiful country, grass and farms as far as the eye could see. On one side and on the other side of camp was a strip of timber, not very wide, but don't know how long it was. There was a stream of water running through it. I soon got acquainted with the country and swimming was the order of the day with all the small boys in camp. We had to stay six weeks in the camp before all things were ready to start across the plains, and it was a great sight to see about six or eight hundred people starting for Utah with handcarts. Nothing of interest, only hard work. The Martin Handcart Company left Iowa City on July 28, 1856. This was two weeks after the Willie Handcart Company had left, due to delays in building carts. The Martin Company Saints pulled lightly loaded handcarts walking across Iowa to Florence, Nebraska where they arrived on August 22, 1856. Here they loaded their handcarts with heavier provisions and left on August 25, 1856. One leader, Levi Savage, said they should not go to Utah that year because of the early winter storms in the Rocky Mountains. Not knowing the terrain and climate of the West, and being eager to reach their destination, with some of their leaders' encouragement and not having adequate housing there, the people voted to go on to Utah. 
one wonders what the relationship was with these women and children. And Barlow, 58, with her three children, her sister Elizabeth Haydock, 55, with her daughter and Oswald's mother-in-law Jane Nightingale, 57, with her three children. Did they travel together? The companies were organized with about five persons to a handcart and approximately 20 individuals to a tent. No known record was made by them as to the hardships they endured. One is left to wonder about what had transpired on the trail with them. There could be documents in the possession of direct descendants of them that tell their story. Anne's eldest son, Oswald, was already in Salt Lake City having arrived there in 1852. He had left his wife in England and sent for her later. She arrived in Salt Lake City in 1853. Thanks for listening to the Pioneer Podcast. We would like to invite you to subscribe to and share this podcast with others. Also, please leave us a review at the iTunes store that helps us more than anything else. If you would like access to more content and information about our Pioneer history, join us at S. U.P.Online.org, the online community of the Sons of Utah Pioneers. That's S. U.P.Online.org. Goodbye until next time, from your friends at the Sons of Utah Pioneers.